the unseen. And I'm your host, Mike Cleland. On this episode, Terry Lovelace returns, and we will be talking more about his experiences, as well as his 2018 book, Incident at Devil's Den. For anyone not familiar with Terry, I would encourage you to go back into the archives and listen to our recorded conversation, our interview from last year in August of 2019. I will also include that in the show notes. That might bring you up to speed on this episode because we get right into it right from the very beginning. In the very first segment, we talk about something that happened quite recently this spring with Terry and it is a little bit unusual. It involves an iPhone. And he contacted me uh, shortly after it happened, and I have been wanting to interview him to talk about this since that point. And we finally got it together just yesterday to do an audio interview. And and this episode is a little less formal than some of the interviews I, I, I run. The conversation has a chance to slide around a little bit, and we cover some other things. And you can hear, um, you can certainly hear it in my voice, that it just, it felt nice just to chat, I guess. All that said, we did cover a lot of territory that we could not get to in the 2019 interview from last summer. So I got to ask him the questions that I wanted to ask last year, but simply didn't have the time. This audio conversation was recorded on Monday, August 11th, 2020. Please enjoy. Terry, I want to thank you so much for saying yes to this interview. It means a lot to me. Well, thank you, Mike. It's good to talk to you again. It's nice to be here. Yes, great to catch up again. Yes, when I remember uh, I to prep for this interview, I listened to our interview, which was just a hair under a year ago. And at the very end, I basically said, wow, we have, I have to have you back on. We need to talk some more because uh, my list of questions was a lot longer than, than our time allowed uh, a year ago. So I'm going to catch up on a few of those questions. And then there was a new event that involved your iPhone. And I would love to hear about that. You've sent me some stuff and we've talked about it briefly, but I've never actually heard the full story played out. Yeah, this is kind of new information that I've not shared with very many people. Um, I think I may have sent you copies of the bills, too. Uh, if not, I can certainly do that. I have them right here in front of me, as, as well as the screen grabs from your phone. Good, good, good. Because uh, people have trouble putting together how I make the connection between the UFO and, and the iPhone. Um, but I sleep with uh, headphones on because, I, you know, ambient noises at night freak me out. And I got to get up and, you know, turn all the lights on in the house and... Uh, you know, that kind of PTSD kind of thing. And uh, I used to listen to, to like orchestral music. Now I listen to uh, uh, apps. I listen to uh, meditative apps mostly. Uh, so I, I go to bed at night. I have a T-shirt that I sleep in with a pocket. And I slide my iPhone 6 into my pocket. I wear my earbuds. And because my battery's so poor, I got a, a line and I hook it up to... Uh, an outlet that's in the the stand that my lamp is on, the base of the lamp. So that's how I sleep, you know. And uh, I've been doing that, like I say, since I had my walk, Sony Walkman. I used to sleep with the headphones on in the 80s. I mean, uh, um, 
But I like my iPhone. I like the availability of the apps, you know, the consciousness apps and, and just stuff that's that's good to listen to. So I, I that's how I sleep. Uh, so I get to sleep, so I stay asleep. And um, on April 16th of uh, last year, 2019, I woke up at 5.55 a.m. You know, and uh, Robert Hastings was quick to point out that's that triple digit thing that uh, a lot of people report uh, and I, I didn't ever give that a thought. But. And, and I'm I'm out of the loop on that one. I actually sometimes get 111, but the number I get is 1234. So I, uh, and, and you know, it's this is funny. I've told people this before, and they don't really believe me. People are sort of outside this loop. And I said, you go to a UFO conference, and you can just ask anyone there, like, what's your number? And everyone will say, oh, my number is 444. Or someone oh. else will say, my number is 333. And everyone has a number that just shows up in their life. Lots of 333s out there. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm sorry. Keep going. Yeah, so so anyway, um, I woke up at 5.55 a.m., and I woke up with a start, and, uh, I mean, I sat bolt upright, and I couldn't catch my breath. And I was, I was, it was, felt like I had run a 100-yard dash. I mean, I was just starved for oxygen. Uh, I didn't have any chest pain, uh, but because of my cardiac history, I told my wife, you know, you better call 911 because I'm, Something's going on here. Uh, and she did. And uh, they responded right away and took me to the hospital. And my uh, my blood pressure was like through the roof, uh, like 212 over 110 or something crazy. And my uh, my pulse was tachycardic. It was, you know, 155 or something. And uh, oh, that's right. You were you were an EMT. I was, I was. Okay, so you know exactly what's involved there. When the people arrived and came in your door, you knew exactly what their job was. I, I, I did, I because I've done that job. Yeah, and you know, I always had kind of an interest in healthcare law, so I, I, I worked around medical people and with medical issues. So I'm, I'm comfortable around healthcare people, uh, which comes in handy sometimes. So. Anyway, when they got me to the hospital, my pulse had dropped back to normal. My blood pressure dropped back to normal. And, well, I, you know, I had two cardiac events, so I know the routine. It's an EKG, a chest X-ray, and cardiac enzymes, those three things. And they did all three. And uh, I, I got there, and the, and the guy said, the doctor came back after about two hours and said, well, everything's clean. He says, I, I don't find that. You know, I don't find that you've had a cardiac event of any kind. And, uh, you know, uh, he said, well, we're going to keep you for observation until about three o'clock and then cut you loose. You know, so I said, that's, that's fine. So three o'clock, they cut me loose, uh, went home and, uh, you know, just just kind of an odd event that just kind of really messed up my day. Uh, but I got home and my wife and I kind of debriefed about it and. You know, had dinner, and then I'm in the habit of uh, taking a walk around the block after dinner, you know, about 7.30 or so. And uh, I, I, I always take my iPhone with me because I clock my number of steps and how far I walk. So I knew my iPhone would only have, you know, 110 steps on it or something because I didn't, you know, I spent the whole day at the hospital. Um, so as I head up my front door toward the street, I turn on my iPhone and I turn on my health app and I look down at it and it says um, you know it says the number of steps walked which I don't remember off the top of my head and then below it it said number of stairs climbed now I never get a readout on number of stairs climbed unless I go to 
you know, the doctor office and have to climb up the stairs for a parking garage or something. And my iPhone said that uh, at 5.23 a.m., I climbed six flights of stairs. And I looked at the graph, and the graph is the, you know, XY graph, uh, the bottom, you know, going from left to right is the passage of time. And then the vertical part of the graph uh, measures height. And one flight of stairs equals 10 feet. So it's blocked off in 10-foot increments. So normally, if I climb a flight of stairs, because I can't climb a flight of stairs in less than a minute, uh, when I look at my health app, I see a stair-step type readout of, you know, the red bar going up to the 10-foot, and then a couple minutes later going up to 20-foot, and then a couple minutes later going up to 30-foot. So I get that stair-step type readout. And I didn't get that this time. At 5.23 a.m., I got this single bar going straight up. And, and that's very unusual. I've never seen that before. And I, I thought, hmm, because I have no stairs in my house. I mean, you know, I live in a ranch house, uh, have, you know, front, front doorstep, that's it. And uh, so I was really, I was just, I was kind of shaken by that just because I had this event tied to the unusual event that I had happened that morning. Uh, what's interesting is that at 5.23 a.m., that's, what, uh, 15 minutes or so before I woke up. 5.23 a.m., I, I was asleep in bed next to my wife. I didn't get up until 5.55. So, and that seems like an awfully uh, short time for them, to, uh, for them to take me aboard or take me up or do something to me in just a few minutes. Um, and I don't know. I had I had trouble making that making that conclusion, but I knew something was wrong. And and, and at first I thought, well, this has got to be a uh, problem with the phone, right? So I took it to my carrier, T-Mobile, and um, you know, the guy looks at it and says, "Well, I did a little diagnostic." He says, "No," he says, "Looks, I don't find anything wrong with your phone." And he says, "You might want to take it to Apple; they can run a diagnostic for you." And I'm like, "Sure, a good idea. I'll do that." So I went to Apple. And I uh, left the phone with them for about four hours. Uh, they were kind of busy. Came back and talked to um, a lady who told me that uh, there's absolutely nothing wrong with your phone. And I said, well, you know, how about this readout on this health app? And she says, well, what that means is that, because I asked her, I said, what does this mean? And she says, well, what it means is, it looks like between 523 and 524 a.m. In that, in that time span, you were 60 feet over your house. <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean to laugh. Sorry. Well, yeah, I, uh, well, that's what I did. That was my response. And I said, well, how does that work? And she says, I don't know. I don't know where you live or the circumstances. But uh, uh, and then she paused for a second and, and said, you know, I, I, I don't have a clue. Here, let me just interrupt and ask one question. Now, I'm curious. Now, it should if it if you went 60 feet up. Is there any way to market the 60 feet return? Like you should come back down again. No, because it doesn't, it doesn't do, it doesn't measure your return. Oh, gotcha. So gotcha. I, yeah. So if I climb the stairs at the, at the parking garage, I get that stair step type readout, but on the way down, uh, it might register as, uh, as steps taken, but I kind of doubt it. I, I didn't know this. I, I thought maybe they use GPS um, somehow to calculate the height, uh, but I'm told it's not. Uh, it's actually done by measuring a change in barometric pressure. Sure, yeah. 
So yeah, that was that was a surprise to me. Supposedly, that's a very accurate measure. Now here, just I'm going to play devil's advocate. Could there have been a dramatic change in barometric pressure that created that? I guess the answer would be yes, if that's what it's registering. Yeah, I mean you could, like you could trick an altimeter by putting it into a, a, a like um, something that's under pressure or something that lessens pressure. Yeah, and it would give you a false reading. That's true. That's okay. True. Yeah, I just just that, that just occurred to me. Yeah, agree with that. I had I had one person say, well, you know, what you probably did was uh, you probably hooked it up to a uh, drone and sent it sixty feet up in the air. And I'm like, well, you know, I I can tell you, I don't own a drone. I don't. <laughs> the last thing I'm going to do is strap my iPhone on something that can crash and send it up in the air, <laughs> and much less spend uh, eight hundred dollars on medical bills. Um, you know, when uh, for for purposes of uh, perpetrating a hoax. So, yeah, no, it's a difficult uh, difficult thing to come to come to, come to grips with. And I had the usual. Uh, spate of nightmares that, that usually follow having some type of interaction uh, that went on for a few weeks. And I have a good friend. He's a board-certified psychiatrist, and I met him at a, uh, at a UFO conference, of all places. And uh, we, got to, we got to talking, and uh, I asked him, I said, well, you know what, what how did you get an interest in this, in this subject? And he said, well, uh, for years, he would see people that would tell them that they had uh, experiences of seeing a craft or experiences of, of abduction. And he said that he, his training in medical school was to, uh, and during his psychiatric residency, was that these people were delusional, you know, and uh, immediately labeled them as such. And then look for some underlying cause to support the delusion. And that's what he had problems with. He said he said he found a lot of people who were otherwise mentally stable, healthy, um, you know, test had them tested by a psychologist. And, uh, you know, their MMPI, the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, that is the diagnostic tool of, of choice in that area, uh, came back that these people were fine, you know, that they were they were mentally healthy and sound. So um, he said, I got to start. I started to think there must be something to this stuff. So he started going to uh, a MUFON meetings about two years earlier and was a regular attendee at a, uh, at a Dallas meeting once a month and would listen to these stories, take notes, and look for commonalities. And uh, suffice to say, he's, he's become a believer, not, not, not in every single instance, but he certainly doesn't immediately rule it out as being a delusional thought um, just because of the topic. He, um, he says it deserves a little uh, exploration. So he also mentioned that he started using hypnosis about a year ago and that he'd gotten some um, pretty interesting uh, results. Um, because of privacy issues, he was hesitant to share those with me. I certainly wouldn't share patients' names, but, you know, he could share vague things like, you know, I've talked to people who claim they'd been on a craft and were able to have memories of that happen. So I, I over breakfast one morning, I, I told him, I said, well, this is what happened. I showed him the health app, and he asked me to describe my nightmares, and I did. And uh, I said, you know, I, I uh, you know, I'd like a, a maybe a regression 
You know, I said, I don't want to go back to 1977. I'm not sure I'm ready for that yet, but I'm, <laughs> I am really curious about what happened to me, um, you know, at, uh, you know, 523 to 524 a.m. back on April 16th, 2019. I'd like to find out what happened during that time where I thought I was asleep. And uh, he said, well, we, we can do that. Hey, I'm going to interrupt. Uh, we have to take our very first break. For free listeners, you will hear some commercials. For paying members, we will be right back. We are back on The Unseen, and I am here with Terry Lovelace, and we are talking about an event that took place on April 16th, 2019. And we're going to pick up right where we left off. Yes, please tell me more. I am I am jonesing to hear the rest of the story. Sure. Uh, well, this... This was probably August that we had this conversation, and in November, I scheduled some time on a Saturday uh, in his office, um, and he recorded the session uh, with an with iPhone, did a video recording, video and audio, um, and, uh, you know, hooked me up to a blood pressure cuff, and, you know, being an MD as well, he wants to monitor my, my overall health while he's doing this. And I got to say, I felt a lot more comfortable having a, you know, board certified psychiatrist. Uh, and, and I'm not, I'm not, uh, you know, putting down therapists or counselors. I think they, they do a very good job, you know. I mean, some of my best friends do regression, you know, Yvonne Smith and uh, Kathleen Martin. And I think they do a wonderful job of it. Uh, but because of my cardiac history, uh, I wanted to make sure that I was kind of around somebody that would, uh, that had that kind of medical knowledge, too. And uh, that gave me a little better comfort level. Um, this is the first time that I've been hypnotized since June of 1977, whenever uh, the OSI in August of 1977, uh, I had the hypnosis session at OSI headquarters at Whiteman Air Force Base. And, uh, you know, I, I thought about being regressed to find out more about what happened then. And I may do that one day, but I'm not I'm not ready to do that now. Um, but I would like to do that one day. So he um, his office is set up where I had you know a nice comfortable couch, of course, cliche, and I'm kind of leaning back. And he went through the hypnotic uh, the standard hypnotic thing they do uh, progressive relaxation. You know, start at your feet, relax your feet, relax your mind, relax your body, you know, relax your scalp and, and uh, this kind of progressive relaxation thing uh, and then counting downward. And uh, so he did that. And I had a little bit of trouble. I, I had a little bit of trouble till I till I felt like I was like I was uh, hypnotized. Uh, you know, it was difficult for me to tell because my only other uh, experience with hypnosis involved sodium amytal. <laughs> I, I didn't have any drugs in my system, so yeah, and yeah, we can talk about that later in this interview. But and I have I have been under hypnosis. I've had it attempted a few times, initially where I don't think I truly went under, and then I have had some what I would consider extremely successful hypnosis sessions. And one of them had nothing to do with UFOs. It had to deal with just um, some issues that I was dealing with. But I certainly know what it feels like and it is a very strange thing it's not it's remarkably 
normal in some sense. Like I, I, I had no sense of being in an altered state of consciousness or anything like that. Um, though I did get into a very good uh, sort of call and response where the hypnotherapist would simply ask a question and then I, I made my best effort to respond without thinking too much. Just let it happen. Yes. Yeah, I was definitely in a weird place. Um, and my my responses sometimes, uh, you know, sometimes I have a tendency to mumble, you know, to my wife's displeasure. But, <laughs> you know, um, so some of my responses were kind of mumbled. But um, he recorded the thing. And when he brought me back up out of hypnosis, uh, I was shocked to find out that I'd been there an hour and a half. Uh, the passage of time seemed like 20 minutes. And um, I listen to the recording the next day, and I don't remember half the stuff that's on there that I said. Oh, wow. Okay, because that's interesting, because I have listened to the recordings that I've made, and I've been pretty impressed that, like, I had pretty good recall. But keep going. This is fascinating. Yeah, I, I, I said things that I, that I had no conscious memory of saying. Um, I do recall that um, I went up. Uh, and this is crazy. I told him that I went up, I went up through the roof, pardon me, the ceiling, and then through the rafters and popped out of the roof. I mean, it's hard to believe as that is, I know. Um, and I said it was just breaking dawn. It was it was still dark, but, um, you know, a little bit of sunlight. And uh, I'm going face up and in a prone position. And I, I can't, I don't feel like I'm flying. I just feel like I'm moving up. And above me was a, um, was a saucer-like craft. And the bottom of the craft opened. And it opened like, um, like a camera lens, you know, uh, a regular 35 millimeter camera lens. The, the aperture. Aperture. That's the word I'm looking for. Yes. Uh, so the aperture opened, and all I could see inside was black. And um, then I, I, I had some distress, and he took my blood pressure, and uh, he calmed down for a minute, and uh, he said, you know, I want you to tell me, uh, you know, about what you saw when you got in there. And I said, uh, I said that I felt a familiarity it, it wasn't uh, it wasn't shocking. It wasn't uh, it wasn't my first time, I don't think, um, because I had that feeling of familiarity. Uh, and, you know, we didn't get much more past that. Uh, there there is more that that needs to be uh, looked at. Uh, and before he brought me back up, he had some concerns about my blood pressure. And before he brought me out of the hypnosis, he said, do you remember how you got back? into your bed and I said yes exactly the same way and he said well were you, were you in distress on your way down were you having trouble breathing and I said no um, and I told him that I think the wires somehow uh, played some role in um, making this a uh, more complicated transport than it maybe normally is um, and that may have been the source of my discomfort I don't know the wires from your phone. The wires from my phone. Yeah, my earbuds. Um, so I had both the earbuds and the the battery uh, cord 
And uh, sure enough, when I woke up that morning, I mean, I, I was in distress, so I didn't pay a lot of attention, but my earbuds were on my chest, which isn't all that unusual. That happens now and then. But the uh, charger was unplugged from the lamp. Now, that was unusual. But So the charger was unplugged from the lamp, but it was still in the phone? Correct. Okay. So, which, you know what, if you, if you pulled on it, um, the... Um, the connection to the wall socket or the the hookup on the lamp would be would be more prone to come out than the uh, than the connection at the iPhone with the you know thing you stick in. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so I'm not surprised that it, that it, it came out like that. Um, and and I, I guess you know if I went straight up, there was enough resistance that it stayed in my pocket. Um, because it, it was firmly in my pocket. When I got back down and woke up, I sat up immediately uh, and was out of breath, like I said. Um, and that's all. So I don't have I don't have all the great details of what happened on board, other than like I like I told him that uh, I'm not I'm not too freaked out. I'm not too scared. I'm. Uh, because he asked me that, are you, are you, are you frightened or, you know, and I'm like, no, 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 I, I, I this has a, a familiarity to it. So uh, that needs, that needs to be explored some more. But at the same time you did, you did, your blood pressure went up. So you were physically, uh, you know, there was a, there was a biological change in your body simply during the hypnosis session. There, there, there was, there was, uh, you know, I think, uh, and he told me it was probably a spike of anxiety um, because, you know, whether you're familiar or not doesn't take away the, the total fright factor. Um, you know, there, there are scary things that we do. You know, I, I did some skydiving when I was young and stupid. And, uh, you know, every time I did it, uh, you know, I'm sure my blood pressure was through the roof. Um, but, but, it was a, but it was an exhilaration. And it was a feeling I was familiar with. Yeah. Yeah. And I've done a lot of stuff with rock climbing and, and uh, mountaineering and things like that. And so I've been in terrain where um, I was sort of seeking out that exhilaration. So, but I know what that means. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, that's the deal. And um, like I said, it was, it was the uh, nightmares, a couple of weeks of nightmares that really motivated me to, uh, to talk to him about it. But then, you know, Thanksgiving, Christmas rolled around. Uh, I had a conference in January and one in February in San Francisco. And then, then, you know, COVID hit and, um, you know, <laughs> yes, that we were all locked in our, yeah. So that changed a lot. Life has changed. So plans are right now for as soon as the, as uh, soon as it's safe, you know, by his standards, he's the MD, uh, we're going to go back and do it again. And this time put the focus on, um, uh, being inside. Hey, let's let's take our second break and then we'll have a nice long stretch and we can really get into it here. So sure. One more break here, and this will be our final break for the show. For free listeners, you will hear a few commercials. For paying members, we will be right back. We are back on the unseen, and I am talking with Terry Lovelace about a very recent experience that he had that involved both hypnosis and some documentation that showed up on his iPhone. 
Now, just before we took the break, you were talking about the familiarity you felt. Yes. Like within the hypnosis session. And I, I want to address that because I had an event when I was 30 years old. And listeners to this show have probably heard me tell this story too many times. And I get a little bit on autopilot when I do tell it. But um, I was living alone in a house in Maine. I woke up in the middle of the night. I sat up in bed. There was a bright light coming in through the window. And I looked outside and there were five spindly gray aliens, the classic aliens, very similar to the cover of Communion with the bald heads and the big black eyes and very, very eerie, skinny bodies. And they were walking towards the house. This was in the wintertime. And they were on the snow walking towards the house. And I was the only one home. So there was like, and I, like there was, so I should have freaked out, right? I should have like, that was a scary image. I felt utterly calm. And I simply, I, I heard a voice in my head that said, oh yes, they're here. Now is the time to put your head on the pillow and shut down. And that's exactly what I did. I simply put my head on the pillow and I went right back to sleep seemingly. Now, I did a hypnosis session with Bud Hopkins probably in 2008. And in that session... I, the story emerged exactly as I told it. There was nothing new as I told it. I don't have any memory of being on a craft or anything like that, but I, I told my waking memory just as clearly as I told it now. But there was one detail that I, I, I actually felt and recognized and understood at the time. And, and just like, I don't know how to say this, like I'm almost too polite to say it. But when I said like, oh yes, they're here. There was a there was a palpable sense of familiarity. It was like, oh, it's them. They're back again. It's them again. Yeah. Like that sensation was very palpable and real in my waking memory. And and I felt like I had a little more permission to sort of go there and say it under hypnosis. But I wasn't saying anything that I didn't already know. Now, you know, and I've tried to explain this. This is how it felt. Like if I was a little kid and like every year at at Thanksgiving, like that, like the aunt and uncle that I never see, but once a year, except at Thanksgiving, mm -hmm. I would watch them pull up in the car and I would watch them get out of the car from the, from let, let's say the, the window in the, in the house. Right. And a year went by and then the car pulls up again and I'd see him come out again. Right. And it would have that familiarity to see him. Oh, there's just like last year at Thanksgiving. And it happens a third year. And then you look out and it's like, oh, it's just like the last couple of years of Thanksgiving. You know, here comes the little aunt and uncle that come over every year and I hardly ever see them, but they're back again. That's a great analogy. That is a terrific analogy. That is exactly how it felt. Yeah. And, and, and that now hypnosis is a, is a, in many camps would be considered a flawed methodology, right? The people are so divided on hypnosis. Some people to say it is the be all and end all. And that's how we're going to get all our information about abduction research is through hypnosis. And then there are other people who say, no, you should not trust anything that comes from hypnosis. And it's, you're completely capable of confabulating things. And, and the guess there's got to be a middle ground because I've talked to so many hypnotherapists who say things like, well, I'll ask questions while people are under hypnosis like very simple questions. Like they'll in essence ask like, you know, what does the light switch look like in the room? I'm, I'm making that up because I've, I know a few things. I'm not going to share what they say. And so different people will describe things exactly the same way. And that would be impossible unless they had seen the same thing. Yes. Um, 
there's some people who will go so far as to say that hypnosis creates a form of ESP where you can tap into the mind of the hypnotherapist and read their mind and give them the answer they want that if that's true that's pretty extraordinary and but you know so if someone wants to factor that in i, I guess anything's open i guess in that sense so is isn't it true that a, the, a fairly high percentage of bud hopkins uh, people that he interviewed uh were not subjected to hypnosis that they had spontaneous memories and and that's what they shared with him that's true of most researchers. Yeah, that 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 I I can't I certainly wouldn't be able to say most or majority or anything like that. But I would say that much of the the information comes from conscious recall. And then uh, the problem is that if you read some uh, UFO books, especially from Bud Hopkins and and David Jacobs that came out in the eighties and nineties, um, there is a lot of hypnosis transcriptions in there, and people will point to that and say that these abduction researchers are getting all their information from this flawed methodology. And that's simply not true. They're getting a great deal of it from conscious recall. Yes. Yes, I agree. I agree. It's only it's only a small fraction of my story. You know, I look historically uh, at hypnosis, and uh, I've I always been interested in it. My undergraduate degrees in psychology. And uh, I remember studying the case of Bridie Murphy, I think was her name. Uh, are you familiar with her in, in the sixties? Is the kidnapping? No, this is this is the woman who, um, under hypnosis, may have been, may have happened in the UK, uh, in in England somewhere. Um, but in the UK, she was under hypnosis, and uh, uh, so I may have some of these facts wrong, but but the the, the windup is the same. She had she had a hypnotic regression. And uh, the hypnosis wasn't for the purpose of regression. That wasn't the object of the exercise. The hypnosis was something to do with a phobia or something she was being treated for. Uh, but spontaneously, while under hypnosis, uh, she said that her name was Bridie Murphy. And then uh, she went on to tell about this uh, life in uh, Ireland in the 1800s, early 1800s, and described and named the village where she came from and names of people and described, uh, you know, everyday items of the day, uh, food, coinage, uh, gave a lot of a lot of detail. And uh, after the fact, uh, they went back and tried to um, to validate what she said uh, with the names and uh but you know, 1840s, and that's that's a long time ago, and, it, and it's it's hard, I think, to verify the facts that she gave. So, that, you know, because they because they couldn't verify the facts, to, in my mind, doesn't immediately invalidate the whole thing. It just means that um, she had a maybe had another lifetime uh, a long time ago in an era that's hard to uh, reconstruct. Um, but they made, then they made a movie about it as well. Well, so there's there's also the story, and um, this is going back a few years ago. Uh, there's some YouTube videos on this event, and I know that uh, uh, Leslie Keen wrote about it in her recent book about surviving death, and that also Marla Fries did an interview probably, geez, 10 years ago on Whitley's site here, and there was a boy who was watching a um, 
World War II movie as like a nine-year-old with his father. And there was a plane and they, I think they called the plane a Mustang or something. He said, that's not a Mustang. That's a P-59. I'm making that up right now off the top of my head. But so he was like telling the names of these planes from World War II. And then the little boy started having nightmares about um, being crashed in a plane. And he later went on to list his name, the person he was during World War II, how he died in an airplane crash where the plane caught on fire and the ship he was on and the people he was serving with. And he went as like a nine-year-old boy, he went to a reunion for the people who were on the aircraft carrier. And these old men, like these guys were in their 80s, these old men talked to this boy as if he was their old buddy from World War II. So there's no hypnosis in this story. And it is this remarkably heartwarming, engaging account of what can, what like can only be a, a form of reincarnation where this boy had lived a life, a previous life and had died in World War II. You know, I, I just love synchronicity. I think it's just the coolest thing in the world. Um, there was a lady from Houston who invited me down to speak in January. Um, and there were going to be two speakers. There was going to be me and a gentleman named Bruce Leininger. And Bruce Leininger is the father of the boy you're, you're speaking <laughs> James Leininger. How did I do in the story? Did I do okay? What's that? Did I tell the story well? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You told it well. You know, uh, and, and you're absolutely right. And, uh, you know, he, he – Bruce was telling me, and it was hard for them to reconcile uh, because they, they were they were very very strong in their Christian faith, and this this concept is at odds with with doctrines that they believed in. But uh, as it went on um, and developed, uh, they came to believe that hey, there's something to this. Um, but yeah, you're right about when he when he went to the uh, he went to the reunion of the. Uh, the aircraft carrier that he was on was called the Nakoma. And, uh, you know, Bruce did some research. Sure enough, there was the Nakoma listed and uh, got a hold of there was a Nakoma. Uh, that's how he met all the all the old guys. There was a Nakoma uh, annual reunion of the survivors. And uh, there's pictures of him. He showed me sitting at a table with these old men drinking coffee. You know, they're drinking coffee. He's drinking milk, but they're they're engaging one another. Uh, on the same level, and it was just amazing to see. Uh, he met uh, his his um, his sister from his other life. Wow! In Kansas somewhere, and um, they drove out to meet her, and he ran to her and threw his arms around her and called her sissy, which is no one no one knew that that was his name for her. And he went on and detailed things about toys and things they did and uh, family stories and uh, so much that she believed that this kid was her her late brother reincarnated. And, you know, you mentioned that he went to the museum. He went to a museum in Dallas, actually, where they have uh, World War II planes. And he was immediately ran over to a Corsair, which was kind of World War II plane. And... Uh, he looks at it from the outside and he frowns and uh, there's like a museum curator walking around and um, he comes over and says, you know, interested in this little boy? And he says, well, it's missing the antenna. Why is that? And he points to a spot on the side of the uh, plane where there should have been, if it were historically correct, there should have been an antenna, but there, but there wasn't on this, on this example. 
And he said, yeah, I remember that antenna. He says, I, I, I tripped over it every time I tried to get out of the plane. <laughs> this, this museum uh, uh, volunteer, docent, whatever you call him, was, uh, was kind of wigged out by that. And let's uh, put him up in the plane. And uh, now I think he's six at this time. Uh, sat in the cockpit of the plane. I'm sitting in the cockpit of the plane and identified the instruments. And uh, he got out of the plane and did, and did a walk around that the guy said is, is, a, is a classic pre-flight check. Wow. And he remembers his death. He remembers that uh, his plane was shot and his cockpit was, was lodged and he couldn't open it. And he said that the cockpit was on fire. And uh, it crashed into the sea and he died. Uh, one of the really curious things Bruce told me was that his son said that he chose his parents, he chose them to be his mommy and daddy. And, you know, and, and Bruce, always being the skeptic, said, well, you know, how did that happen? You know, did you get a list of what happened? How did, how did that happen? And he says, no, no, when I was in heaven, I saw you and mom uh, on a beach having dinner, and you were in the pink hotel. And that's when I, I chose you to be my new mom and dad. And... Uh, Sure enough, some months before uh, he was conceived, there were or around the same time, I guess, <laughs> vacationing or had an anniversary trip to Hawaii, to Honolulu. And they were staying at, at a, uh, a pink hotel and they had dinner on the beach that night. And um, just an amazing detail that he would never be privy to. So many things he came up with that, you know, there's no way to know. No reason to explain how he could possibly know this stuff. And then, and then you have also met Leslie Keen, who wrote about that in her book um, *Surviving Death*. I sure did. I sure did. And uh, yeah, Leslie is, is fascinated with this story, you know, as, as is everyone else, because superficially it it sounds like a cool story, but when you get into it, Bruce, you know, had the presence of mind to do all the uh, investigative work. Uh, and look up the Nakoma, look up the crewmen, uh, talk to the survivors. And uh, um, the book is called Soul Survivor. Yeah. I think it was published in 2009. And Leslie Keen wrote a, a bit about it in her book, Surviving Death. Yeah. She did. She did. As a matter of fact, they know one another. Oh, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. I would I would think she would go right to the source for something like that. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yeah, I read that book. I enjoyed that book. Leslie Keen's book. Yes, I did, too. I did, too. Yes. Um, this story fascinated me, so I'm totally content to just conversations have that way. They kind of veer around. They have a life of their own. But I want to bring you back to the hypnosis session you did in, I think it would have been 1977. Yes. And that that took place several days, if I'm not mistaken, or about um, uh, several weeks after your event uh, that took place at yeah. My, my event happened uh, first week in June, and this was about first week in August. Whenever they called me into the OSI office, they sent a car for me to pick me up, and drove me to the OSI uh, headquarters building. Now this is after I had spent three days in a hospital uh, that coincided with the event. It was like you know the next the next three days I was in the hospital because uh, well both of us were acute, listed as acutely ill. I was terribly dehydrated burned and I had these flash burns to my eyes are very painful. Oh, hold it. Just... Let me just interrupt real quick. I'm just going to interrupt the, um, 
for listeners, please go back and listen to the to the show that uh, Terry and I did uh, just a little under a year ago, where we talk about the actual event that took place at Devil's Den. So yeah, I just want to clear that up. Sorry about that. Yes, yes, because then it'll make a lot more sense. Um, but yeah, uh, while I was in the hospital, uh, the two OSI agents, as I explained, came and saw me and uh, scared me to death. Um, you know, they, they, they asked me a bunch of questions, and I kind of think the, the whole object of that exercise was to intimidate me. And toward the end of the interrogation, there were, there were two of them. There was a captain and a major. The major did all the talking. The captain left. And then it was just me and this major in the room. And uh, he had his arm against the door, and he leaned down because the head of my bed was near the door, and leaned down next to my ear and said, son, I know, and you know, you two knuckleheads stumbled on a, onto something out there, didn't you? And I think you know what I mean. And, and I didn't answer. I didn't know how to answer. Because uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't about to tell him, you know, I saw a UFO the size of Walmart. You know, I'm afraid he'd put me in a psych ward. Um, so I didn't answer him. And, and then he says again, he says, oh, yeah, I think you know what I'm talking about. And he says, all I want to know is, uh, or all I want is your camera and your film. And this will all just go away. So I think the whole thing was that they were, because I had a reputation as an amateur photographer. I had a dark room in my house and uh, developed black and white prints. And uh, I think that they, A, I think they knew that that thing was there. The UFO was there. And I think that uh, they thought that I had photographs of it. And then, and then when you and your friend Toby, like, left the next morning... Like you actually left stuff behind we left that had <laughs> that pardon? We left everything except my wallet and my car keys. Yes. Yeah, so they had things that had uh, like I remember in the book you talked about they had uh, Air Force mosquito repellent, for instance. Yeah. And there were Air Force blankets there from the hospital. We borrowed. We we're going to take them back. And uh, Toby left his backpack there that had his address on it. We both lived on NCO housing on the base. So it wasn't too hard to track us down. Um, but because we left in such a hurry, I think they thought that we were going to be coming back for some reason. And I think that's what generated a lot of interest. That and the fact, I think, that they knew something was flying around in that area. And, and the only reason I go into that is um, to set the stage for the second hypnosis session, where the object was to determine if I was telling them the truth whenever I said I didn't take any photographs, because I, I didn't. Uh, I had actually left my camera at home, but, you know, my friend Toby had a camera in his backpack and right, you know, within arm's reach, neither one of us ever thought to take a picture of this thing that we saw. That's very common. That's very common within the literature. People have a camera in their hand and they, they won't take a picture. Yeah. So I've heard it before. So, um, yeah, so the hypnosis session uh, was done at OSI headquarters in an interrogation room. Kind of your standard interrogation room. The two agents, special agents of the OSI, were there. Uh, and there was a third uh, gentleman who joined us who was a major. Uh, he, wore, uh, he was in uniform. He had oak leaves on his collar, but he had no, uh, no nameplate, no name tag, which was very unusual. And uh, this guy carried himself more like a, like a priest or a therapist. You know, he, he didn't carry himself like a military officer. Uh, and I, th I think that was probably his profession. I think he was probably recruited as a from that me from the mental health 
field from some in some fashion, some discipline. So um, they also administered uh, sodium amytal, which is a short-acting hypnotic. Uh, so I ended up getting several doses of it, and uh, I, I can say this: that that's, you know, that I mean, that was like bam. It it was. Uh, It'll put you in a different place. I mean, it was um, an experience like I've never had before or since. And uh, so, but under under hypnosis, uh, the hypnosis lasted quite a while. But to cut to the chase, uh, toward the end of the thing, uh, well, there were a couple things interesting. I, I told him about seeing some other humans that were on board the ship that I thought were crew members. But they wore tan uniforms with orange insignias, and and these guys did. They looked just like they looked like us. I mean, they were our age, you know, nineteen to twenty-two, um, you know, military-style haircuts. They sure, they wore what sure looked like military-issue boots to me. Um, but they completely ignored us. And uh, the one guy walked over to a panel and did something to a panel, and then they walked away as a group. I never heard them speak, um, but I saw them. And when I told them that, that memory from being on the ship, that created a lot of stir. There were, you know, papers rattled, and I heard an expletive from them from the uh, OSI agent. And uh, he he stops and he says, "Okay, Terry, now that never happened." He says, "You're going to forget that because that never happened. That doesn't make sense, does it?" Uh, and I said, "No, I guess not." And he says, "No, it doesn't because it never happened." And you're going to forget about that right now. We're going to take that memory away. So they were really, really um, concerned that I not hold on to that memory for some reason. And uh, I just remember thinking, because I tried really hard to hold on to half of my mind. And, and I tried really, really hard to say, well, you know, this is obviously important. I'm going to remember this. Uh, and I did. I'm, I'm sure there's a lot that I don't remember. Um, but there's sure a lot that I do. And this, this, that section in the book, um, I have both read your book and listened to your audio, the, the audio reading of your book, the audible version. In both events, in reading the text, as well as listening to you retell it, it is a very troubling, distressing story. You know, what comes out is that these, these officers knew full well about these experiences you know that this was you were not you were not the first person that they had done this to that they had put under hypnosis and uh and retrieved this kind of information not a doubt in my mind that's absolutely true well i knew that when i was in the hospital bed whenever he said i know what you two guys stumbled onto i mean that was kind of a, a wink and a nod that uh you know you saw the big you saw the big ufo didn't you <laughs> you know um and then the uh the hypnosis session afterwards to determine if I were if I were being honest or not. And, uh, you know, I, I'm glad that I did. I, I told the truth. I mean, I admitted something. I, I, you know, I admitted everything to do with the UFO. I, I told him that we weren't feeling well that evening, which was true. Uh, we went to bed, which was true. Uh, we woke up sick as dogs, which was true. And we came back. And we were so sick, we left everything there. So, yeah, so I, I was truthful with them. So, during the hypnosis session, uh, if they if they did probe my memory to ask me, I do remember they asked me, uh, he asked me if I told the truth to these agents. And I said, yes, I did. Because I felt like I could say that because I felt like I did tell them the truth. 
be it with an omission, but uh, but the truth nonetheless. Now, I have had pretty good recall of my hypnosis sessions. It's interesting because I wrote about a hypnosis episode, and then some months later, I got an audio and could could look at the transcript, and I was pretty impressed at how what I had written and the actual things I said were were close enough that that it read correctly, like what I had written read correctly. Um, there was a couple things that were mixed up about time, like things that, that didn't last very long, I felt uh, lasted a very long time under hypnosis, and, and then the other way around, too. Um, so time got distorted, but but as far as like what I said and the, the tone of it, like I felt like I, like I, I had very good recall. And now, you were writing about your event close to 40 years later, so you would have written this in... 2017? That's right. That's right. I did, but I, I, I had some help. And that was um, because of what happened the day after we got, two days after we got back uh, with the OSI, I didn't know if I was going to be charged with a crime or not. Uh, and I had no idea. You know, they mentioned, they, they asked the question, you know, you boys got a little marijuana plot down there? Is that what this is all about? And I was scared to death that, you know, just by happenstance, somebody might be cultivating a marijuana plot down there and they could hang it on us. And in 1977, that would have meant, you know, dishonorable discharge and, and probably time at Leavenworth, depending on the size of the plot. And uh, for that reason, uh, I had the presence of mind to record everything in a notebook. Matter of fact, I, I filled two notebooks. Um, I had one notebook where I included the everything about the UFO. And then I had a separate notebook where I included everything that happened to me when I got back and the questions asked and, and my responses um, and dates. And I wanted that. I thought that, that if they if they court-martialed me for some reason, I, I wanted to have um, a contemporaneous record of everything that happened. So people say, well, how can, how can your memory be so good? And well, you know, my memory's not that good. <laughs> well, that's good for me to hear because that was, you know, I was wondering. Yeah. Like, yeah. That makes perfect sense then. Great. Yeah. My, uh, my wife kept those, those two notebooks and they were in a storage locker up in Michigan, actually. And uh, she flew up and got them, brought them back. And uh, it was kind of shocking to see them again and even more shocking to read, read them. But uh, I'm glad I have them. So here we've been at it for almost an hour, and we can sort of wind this down here a little bit now. One question. So this book came out uh, just a little over two years ago, and the book was very successful, and you have since been thrust into the role of public speaker. I know you. Are you still doing your podcast series that you were doing? I'm not. Um, I'll tell you what I found out. I, I'm not a good podcast host. Uh I'm by far a better guest. Uh, <laughs> and you know, the, the problem is, I think, I, I think from, from my years of practicing law, when I, when I got somebody in front of me, I want to cross-examine cross them, you know, and I keep interrupting them. And uh, I'm just honest, honestly not very good at it and, and, don't, and don't really enjoy it. Where on the other side of the microphone where I'm the guest and I'm, I'm telling what happened to me, I'm very comfortable with that. So, so that's, why, that's why I do this. I, I like this. Okay, I try not to cross-examine <laughs> when I, I talk to people. You are a wonderful host. Don't worry. You do a wonderful job. <laughs> okay. So here's my question, though. So you you made a big splash in the UFO scene not too long ago, and you got tossed right into the deepest end of the pool. 
Like, how, how is it going for you, this new chapter of your life? You know, it's going well. Um, I'm a little disappointed that I had, you know, six conferences canceled this year. But, you know, I'm in the same boat with everyone else. Um, I've done a lot of podcasts to try to compensate for that. And uh, but I do miss the public speaking. I've always enjoyed public speaking. And, uh, um, you know, the, the crowd and the travel is still is still new enough that it's still fun. So, um yeah, you know, I, I have no complaints uh, at all. I'm uh, happy to be in the place I'm at. I'm glad that I, I think that it was so cathartic and so uh, good for my overall mental health in processing what happened so many years ago that, that this was just an overall very good thing. And I have found the same thing, that talking about this has been uh, like bottling it up wasn't working. And then and and I tried to bottle it up for a long time. And it wasn't working. And I like it wasn't just bottling up like I fully was in a place of denial. And it was just, you know, it was like uh, when you uh, like are trying to boil water and the pot of water on the stove is boiling. And that 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 lid is just tap, 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 tapping away. It's not a peaceful thing, you know, like like I needed to lift the lid off of that thing, and just let the steam escape. And and that yes. that eventually happened. And that was um, hard work on my part. Hey, one thing I do want to talk about is you had an issue with your eyes at the right after the event in 77. I, I did. You know, we had this, uh, this terrible sunburn that, that never, never blistered. It never peeled. But I had this terrible sunburn all over my body. Um, and uh the most painful thing that I had was I had I was diagnosed as having what they called flash burns to my eyes, um, because when we when we left the park it was still dark, and as soon as the sun came up my eyes were bothering me anyway. But as soon as the sun came up and the sunlight hit my eyes, oh man, it felt like somebody threw a sand, you know a handful of sand in my eyes. So uh, they said it was the same kind of burn. It's basically like a sun sunburn to the cornea of your eye. That's what a what an arc welder would get. Sure, yeah. So uh, that that was really the most painful thing that I experienced, and uh, for that reason, they kept the lights turned off in my hospital room, and you know, put salve in my eye two or three times a day, and uh, you know, it healed pretty quick. In four days, it was it was much better. Uh, um, Debbie Kabul uh, had the very same thing, or something very similar. I can't diagnose what she had, but she talked about eye issues that she had after an event. And she's the woman that that is the lead figure in the book that uh, Bud Hopkins wrote called Intruders. And uh, oh, yes. so and she's a wonderful person to to talk with. She's very, very grounded and very, very uh, she's a she's a great witness. Yeah. And um, Debbie Kabul had uh, the issue with the eyes. Now, I when I was. Forty six. 2008, when I was 46 years old, I was diagnosed with a cataract in my right eye, which is a little on the young side. And here's how it happened. I was I was working in the mountains um, and I wore sunglasses. I was very careful, like at high elevation, you know, so you could damage your eyes, of course, at that elevation um, in the Wind River Range in Wyoming. And I'd spent a lot of time in that area. And I got up in the middle of the night and left the tent to go uh, relieve myself. And it was a beautiful full moon. This is like a magical place camped by a lake with the big peaks and the wind river range, full moon, magical. I looked up at the moon and there was a halo around the moon, like an odd halo. And it was unusual. It was something I'd never really seen before. And I kind of looked at it and I was like, that's odd. And I closed one eye and it disappeared. And I opened the other eye 
And it was obviously something in my right eye was creating that halo. And I went to an optometrist afterwards. You know, they looked in my eye and they said, oh, I can, we can see a cataract. I have a picture of it that they took. And a cataract isn't much more than a milky protein that, that uh, is in the lens of your eye. And it can be caused by UV radiation. So, And that's the first time you had any symptoms of, of having it, any, any, any inclination, anything was even wrong with your eye. Like, boom, just one night there was a halo around the moon. Wow. Now, that night, I was in the tent, and I was camped with a coworker, so there was someone else in the tent with me, and I, but I had a dream that night. Now, this dream is funny, and I'll tell you the dream. I'll tell it quick. I, I, now, I have to say, once again, this is a dream. I've told this story on the air before, and people say, oh, my God, and they'll treat the story like it's true. It is not true. It is a dream. But I was at my brother's house in this dream. My brother's a few years older than me, and he's an engineer, and, and, uh, and he said, Mike, I, you know, like, here, come into the garage. I got some. You, you'll get a kick out of this. I want to show you something. So he takes me to the garage. And he's got a flying saucer in his garage, and it's partly disassembled. I'm like, wow, Jim, where'd you get this thing? He's like, eh, some guy at work had it, and he didn't want it anymore. And I just, so I said, I'd take it. And I, so I just keep the garage door closed. And, and it was actually up on, like, um, uh, sawhorses. Oh, my God. And so there it is in his garage. And he's like, and he says to me, but you know what? You can't get close to it because it distorts reality if you get too close. I'm like, you're kidding. So I walked right up to it and I walked up close to it. And then I, I like was overcome with this distorted feeling of, of like this odd silence. Now, I'm going to jump back to the story I told earlier. When I said that I saw the five beings out my window, that event was accompanied by this odd, distorted feeling. And I, it's hard to explain. It's like, weirdly quiet it's like your your normal brain chatter is shut down like there's this hyper clarity to everything and and i i had one woman say to me you know she was in the presence of a ufo she was close up in the presence of a ufo and she described like she said you know what it felt like being that close to to a hovering craft do you know when you have two magnets and you they click together right but you pull them apart and you turn them 90 degrees and you try to press them together but then they repel each other and so you try to push them together they won't go together there's like this warbling energy there's nothing really to see there but there's this warbling kind of palpable energy she said it was like being in between those two magnets and when she said that, I was like, oh, that is a perfect explanation for what it felt like to see those five beings out my window. Like it was being in between the magnets in that warbling energy. And so I could walk up close to this craft in my brother's garage in the dream, and I'd have this kind of warbling energy, and I would back away, and it would dial down to zero, and I'd walk up close to it, and it kind of amp up. And the way the dream ended is, he's like, you know, I can't get past this thing. I can't get past this that weird thing. And so he, my brother took this long stick and he put a digital camera on the end of the stick and he put it in the door and put it in the craft so he didn't have to get close to it. And that's when I woke up. Whoa. So I had what amounted to a, a UFO dream that mimicked that same warbling energy, that palpable warbling energy. I've since that had it a few more times, all of them associated with what certainly feels like UFO contact. And that was the, like I got out of the tent after waking up from that dream. Like I woke up, boom, from that dream. So do I got to go outside and pee? I walked outside, looked at the moon, and there was a halo around it. It's the first time I'd ever seen that. That's a so I'm cautiously 
speculating. There is a, like, I can't say for sure because I don't know, but I'm cautiously speculating. Did something happen that night and was a real event kind of obfuscated by this, this dream? Yeah, you know, I mean, the dream comes from somewhere. And, uh, that, you know, that feeling, I, I, I think I talk about it in my book, with, that when, uh, when we first saw the craft, I felt this feeling of calm wash over me. Uh, but what was more interesting was I had this mental um, kind of, I wouldn't call it apathy, but almost disinterest. I felt like I was um, a disconnected observer rather than a participant in these things. And it was just a weird, just a weird place to be. And you also talk about the weird silence. The crickets and the tree frogs stopped making their noises. Very true. I mean, it was, uh, that was weird. You know, that that kind of uh, unnerved me. My, my, my buddy blew it off and said, ah, oh, you know, we've been, and he was right. We'd been making a lot of noise and laughing and cutting up. And he said, just give it a little bit of time. They'll be back. And uh, one of the last things I remember that night before, um, going into the tent was he was wrong that the crickets and the tree frogs never did come back because that eerie silence was there uh, all night. And that eerie silence is often called the Oz factor by researchers. So that actually has a name. That's a very commonly reported uh, effect. It's not that the crickets are quiet. It's that there's an absence of almost any sound. Like there's no rustling. The, the wind could be blowing, but the leaves don't make any noise. There's an eerie unsettling silence. Yeah. There was, you know, I also felt a stillness. Absolutely, yeah. And 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 that felt unnatural, but that's hard to describe. Um, it's all hard to describe. Yeah, we're we're like grasping at straws to try to to try to articulate these things. Yeah, we may have been in a different place. Hey, what do you? What's going on for you in the future? Are you working on another book? You know, I, I have what I sure could make into a book. And uh, I've been lazy since I've been on uh, house arrest lockdown here and uh, could have put this time to good use and haven't. But, uh, you know, I put an email in the back of my book and I said, if, if you've had an experience and you want to share it with me, I'd be happy to, um, to, to, to read it and I'll get back to you. And I've had 1,300 emails so far. 1,300 emails in less than two years. Less than two years. A little less over two years, yeah. Yeah, I think the last time we talked, it was 800 or something, probably. Um, but, you know, uh, like, you know, you wrote an excellent book based on input from others. Um, oh, the stories book, the second book, Stories from the Messengers. Oh, my God. Yeah. You know, I, I, it was a good example because I'm thinking, you know, I could do something like that. I could take these these people write me and uh, out of that 1300, I'd say that there's a core uh, collection of maybe 400. <laughs> 400 is a, that is such a high number. I'm laughing because I'm like, I am totally experiencing the same thing. Like I am flooded with these remarkable, powerful stories. You know what? Isn't it funny? I bet you, I bet you, I bet you can, can relate to this more than, you know. Yeah. And everyone, they start off with a disclaimer. The first paragraph is always, I've never written anybody before. Please don't think I'm crazy. I'm not on drugs. I'm not drinking. There's some type of disclaimer in the first paragraph. I call that the apology. Yeah. Yeah, the apology. There you go. And then they go on and tell me these amazing stories. And, uh, you know, some of them, as a matter of fact, the bulk of them seem to come from people in their 60s and 70s. 
And I think that at, at a certain point, people like don't care anymore and just are going to want to get this off their chest. Yeah. 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 I think some people like well, one woman I talked to by phone uh, and she said, you know, I, I think that this is important. And, you know, I know that I don't have all that much time left on this earth. And she said, I just think it's important that it be recorded. And I said, yeah, I think you're right. I think it is important. And thank you for sharing it. And and uh, Whitley put out a book with his wife, Anne, called The Communion Letters, because when, after the book Communion was published, now, no matter how many books you think you sold, mine Communion was like at the top of the New York Times bestseller list for a year. Oh. So that is like that tapped into something in the in the American psyche or the world psyche that opened the floodgates for what we now call UFO contact. Yes. Obviously, there was stuff in the literature before then. Um, but wow, that book like changed everything. And uh, the number he throws around, and I don't think it has any way of having an accurate number, but he basically says a quarter of a million letters showed up at, yeah. his, at his house and that the, that the post office was bringing them in big bags. And he boiled that down to a, Whatever. I'm going to guess like a 200 page, 200 plus page book. Wow. Yeah, I heard he told me the story about the, the bags of mail. And uh, uh, I'm sure, you know, Jeffrey Kripal from uh, Rice University. Oh, yeah. And, you know, they're 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 cataloging and uh, archiving all of all of those letters. You know, I would love to that would that's actually sort of on my list. Is I would love to get some grad students, you know, like like put some time on their hands and let's I would love to put the letters I've received into some sort of spreadsheet. Now I'm like, I'm in a funny place because I'm very specific. I basically said, I want to hear your owl stories. So I'm getting stories that involve owls Yeah. and they've, I, I can't, I don't know how many it's, but it's, it's, it's in the thousands. I would say the, the number of letters I've received and I have tried my hardest and it is, it is so difficult. I've tried my very hardest to get back to each and every person. And I have failed at doing that, but I have done my best. I certainly got back to most of them. Well, you're responsible for the effort, not necessarily the outcome. So, yeah. yeah. Oh, by the way, you know, uh, uh, you probably know Jeff Kripal, but when you go into his office and I should have got a picture of it, but we were, we were hurried and we were rushed out of the office. Uh, over his desk, there's there are, there's a series of bookcases, and Rice University, their their mascot, their symbol is the owl. And there's this uh, about a foot high statue of an owl, and right next to it is your book, Owl Messengers. Yep, and uh, you told me that you told me that in a letter, and I at, uh, and I've had conversations with Jeff, um, personal conversations where I've told him some stuff like, like he's a researcher and he's researching this. Um, uh, the the much more mystical side of these events, which is where I'm finding myself. So I've had a couple kind of heart to heart phone calls with him, wrestling with my own issues, and it's happened over the years. And I'm much more calm than I was when when I first talked to him. Let me put it that way. Makes sense. Yeah, makes good sense. Hey, um. This has been great. I'm glad we got a chance to check in again and to talk. It's 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 tough to keep these connections up sometimes. Um, I love email for the fact that you can you can just send off a quick hello kind of thing. But this felt great to have a good long conversation. And I had very few questions written down. And I'm glad we could kind of, you know, it felt a little looser as far as some of the way I run some of my conversations. 
Yeah, you know, it seems like every time we get together, we always have a good conversation. And, um, and I appreciate that. I had a lot of fun. I enjoy myself. Good. Very nice. Good. Hey, how do people get in touch with you? Uh, easy. I'm at uh, uh, terrylovelace.com is my website that I terribly need to update. But uh, there's some there's some cool images on there, uh, pictures. Uh, also, I'm on Facebook at um, Incident at Devil's Den. Uh, and the book Incident at Devil's Den is available on Amazon, either in, in uh, paperback with photos in the back, uh, Kindle version or the or the audio book. So that's how that's how they can reach me or they can email me uh, at uh, Lovelace dot Landpope, L-A-N-D-P-O-P-E. Long story. Lovelace dot Landpope at Gmail dot com. And uh I promise I'll do my best to return everyone's email. And you're a good man for that. I, I, I do my very best. It, what happens is if one slips through the cracks, it's just almost impossible to get back there and find it again. It is. I know the feeling. Yeah. Hey, let's keep in touch, and then um, I'll give you a heads up when this is on the air. Sounds great. Well, it's been good to talk to you again. It's been great. Well, take care of yourself. Good. Bye now. Bye-bye. Hey, this is Mike. I am chiming in after the editing. Once again, I want to encourage anyone who only heard this episode to jump back and go listen to the initial episode, which was recorded in August of 2019. That is an excellent companion to this episode. If you've made it this far, thank you so much. Bye now.